0: There is simply nothing like having a best friend, someone whom you can count on, someone whom you don't have to put on a show around, someone who kno- really knows you, knows all of your secrets, all of your struggles, perhaps has enjoyed life with you, your, your good days and your bad the one whom you can call in a moment's notice, the one whom you can ask the big ass, right? Those really hard things in life and and they'll do them for you. Friendships are cultivated over a lifetime. There's simply nothing like having that one friend. Perhaps you have one of those friends. Perhaps you have many. Those individuals whom you can count on when the the tough times come when you really need to have someone, when you need to lean on someone and, and really depend on them. You, you have them and you call them and they're there. The Apostle Paul had such men in his life. and We're going to look at one of those men today, a man by the name of Tychicus. Tychicus was a man who was Paul's, in many ways, right-hand man. He had, been, he had come to faith under the preaching of Paul's ministry come to know Christ there in Ephesus. He had seen Paul's good days and bad days, perhaps there when the silversmith seeks to kill Paul in Acts chapter 18. and He was there in the days when Paul was being run out of town. He was there in the days when great revival. He was a man whom Paul trusted. Trusted even to send this letter to the church in Ephesus. He was a man... He was respected and loved, beloved as we we're told in the text. He was, a, he was a true companion in the gospel. We want to think about that this morning as we wrap up this letter. And of course, we've been considering over the last few weeks the armor of God, which is just a tremendous summary of some of the themes that we've seen, particularly in the latter half of the book, a, a real application to much of what we've studied Oftentimes when we think about the armor of God, we think about it divorced from really the theme or the the whole letter of Ephesus. And I hope you've been helped by your seeing how it's so interconnected to what Paul's been arguing about this gracious call that we've received in Christ, this eternal plan of redemption, this mystery, as Paul calls it, about how Jews and Gentile ethnic groups that were historically at war with one another have been united into a new family, a new race called the church and how God's eternal purpose was to put the church on display so much so that Paul relates marriage that that ordinance that's grounded in creation is something that God created really with the goal of displaying his love for his own bride Christ's bride the church so amazing to think that an ordinance like marriage itself, something grounded all the way in creation thousands of years ago as God created the world and grounded it, how all of that was really about Jesus and about the gospel of Jesus Christ, this message of redemption that would come. We've thought about these great themes in the armor of God, and as Paul prayed that they might know all of this, throughout this letter, Paul has continually prayed that they would know God better. In fact, this letter of of Ephesians is probably one of the best books in all of, of Scripture where you can go and learn how to pray better. Paul has two very lengthy prayers in this letter That helped us to understand really what to pray for. So, friend, if you're struggling in your prayer life, let's turn to these lengthy prayers that Paul has in this letter, taking up so much real estate to pray, and make them your prayer this new year. Uh, Perhaps spend New Year's Day praying these prayers in your life. Well, friend, as we thought about these things, we we wrap this up in Ephesians chapter six and. And so often when you read these letters, you think, well, that's great. Paul's just giving you some, some really travel plans, itinerary that happened 2,000 years ago. It's like, it's like reading yesterday's news, right? As if it is meaningful for us today. Nobody here, I, I would hope, has yesterday's news, right? We know that it, there's always something new. And, and when you read these texts, you can feel as if we're reading news that's really unimportant. But, but friend, you would miss this truth. And I want you to get this that all scripture is God breathed. Everything. Even this, this little itinerating, this little ministry update is God breathed. It's inspired scripture. It is God's word to his church meant to exhort, encourage, and build his church up. So I invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 6 if you've not done it already. Page 997. 979, rather. Um, now. Now I know where my kids get it from. 979 is the page number in Ephesians 6. Um, I always frustrate our scripture readers because many times I will announce a passage for which they are not prepared to read because I don't know what I'm talking about. So, sorry. I almost did it today to Miss Edie. Um, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 21. So that you also may know how I am and what I'm doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Well, as Paul concludes this, this letter... He offers us here, I think, by way of reminder, uh, uh, really a commendation of this minister of the gospel. And also a reminder to continue to rely on God. So, so really there's two things I want to con- con- consider this morning. First, this commendation. And then secondly, this exhortation to continue to rely on God. Uh, in verses 21 and 22, Paul I believe, is really saying commend faithful gospel ministers. What Paul means to do here by way of report is to, to teach the congregation the kind of pastors they need to listen to. The kind of ministers that they need to, to pay attention to. Paul here, I believe what he's doing here is, is, is not passive, but rather actively teaching the congregation by way of commendation the kind of faithful gospel ministers this church should listen to. And then finally, in verses 23 and 24, Paul just simply says this, continue to rely on God. Continue to rely on all that we've thought about, he says. Continue to rely on the peace of God that I, that I just told you about. Continue to rely on the love of God. Continue to rely on that, that, that faith you have in Christ. Continue to rely on the grace of God. And he does that by way of benediction. So let's look here at what Paul writes. First, he gives a, a commendation of, of our friend Tychicus. Look there. He says, "...so that you may know how I am and what I'm doing." Tychicus... The beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord will tell you everything. Notice how Paul describes young Tychicus. He describes this man as a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord. Now, you might think Paul is just sort of kind of trying to puff him up a bit, but that's not at all what he's doing. Paul is not going to give any commendation to anyone who doesn't deserve it. But you see that Paul here is commending Tychicus for his faithful and beloved ministry. People loved this man. Uh, we're told in Acts chapter twenty. We're told in the end of the letter of Colossae. We're told even in Onesimus as uh, Onesimus is going back to Philemon and and reporting uh, and and really seeking repentance from him. We're told that Tychicus is there. In the text itself, we it seems to imply that that he's the courier of the letter. letter that is. Uh, this this young Tychicus is the one who is is the one currying the letter of Ephesus to the church. But notice here that he's described as one who's faithful, one who's dearly loved, one who's loved by the church. You know, frankly, if you've spent much time in the church, there there are some that are hard to love, but but there are some that are just so beloved, right? They have that reputation in the church that everyone loves them. They're such an encouragement. You want them around. They they seem to liven up any room and bring encouragement to the congregation. Tychicus was such a a person. He was one who was loved by the brotherhood. And this reminds us the kind of pastors that we want to exhort, the the kind of elders we want to affirm, are the ones who are loved. I know it's hard... that seems very simple. But so many congregations go awry here. They appoint men who are in the eyes of the world successful. But in the eyes of the church, they're just simply not beloved. Friend, we want to affirm those men who are loved, who, who exhort such characteristics that, re, that, that sort of require us to love them because they're so good and faithful to Christ. Not only that notice what he describes him there in verse 21 again he describes it as a faithful minister in the Lord a faithful minister one who is trustworthy one whom is dependable but Paul could depend on Tychicus. He could, he could send him on an assignment and know that he's not going to abandon the faith. He's not going to leave. This is why Paul will exhort young Timothy to be slow with the laying on of hands and, and not to allow a new convert to serve in the office of pastor. The kind of men Paul wanted the church in Ephesus to commend were men who were faithful in the gospel, men who were dependable, not deplorable, men who were faithful day in and day out, who were almost obstentiously stubborn when it came to the word. In other words, they were so committed to the inspired word of God, they were unshakable. Brothers and sisters, the kind of gospel preaching we want to continue to have here for another hundred years is the kind of dependable, unshakable faith in the Word of God that isn't blown by every wind of doctrine. What perhaps what Paul was pointing to there in Ephesians 4, verse 14. So that you may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and Carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Friends, how confusing is it for a church to have a pastor or a group of pastors, elders leading them, that are sort of driven and tossed to and fro by, by every wind of doctrine that comes along? every program that Lifeway puts out, they run after. Every, every silly little thing that some church growth guru puts out, they run after. Friends, there's nothing more confusing to you as a Christian. To run after these things. Brothers, this is what we want is just a boring same old say. What you're doing today is ordinary obedience. And what we want in pastors is ordinary preaching. It's trusting in the extraordinary power of God. That's faithful. The kind of commendation that Paul offers here helps us understand what the church is to be led by. And so Paul here commends this Tychicus, this man who is a beloved and faithful and notice here also minister in the Lord. These words are intentional. They're purposeful. There's reason behind why Paul, the realm in which the ministry is going on is the ministry of the Lord. In other words, this isn't Tychicus's ministry. This isn't Paul's ministry. This is the Lord's ministry. It's the Lord's work. And what we want to affirm as a congregation is men who say are about the Lord's work and not their own work. Not their own denominational agenda, not their climbing some corporate ladder to have a bigger or better church, but rather men who are equipped, called by God, and who are faithful to minister in the Lord's work. Notice also in the text the mission that Tychicus has been sent on. I've sent him to you for this very purpose. There's a purpose why Tychicus is coming. He had a twofold purpose that you may know how we are, a report, an update, and that he may encourage your hearts. Now, we might think that what Paul is doing here is really just sort of passive, passe, not important. Even what Tychicus is doing just seems to be, okay. he's he's a he's a mailman. He's just delivering a letter. But he's not delivering just any letter, is he? He's delivering the inspired word of God to this congregation. He's delivering God's word to God's people. What an incredible, what a tremendous responsibility. Not meant for the weak of heart. Not meant for someone who can't handle it. we see here in the text that this is a tremendous task. For example, when uh, Titus is sent to Crete. Uh, Paul doesn't send Timothy. He sends Titus for a particular reason. When he sends Timothy back to this church, there's a reason why Timothy goes to this church to to minister to this particular congregation. See, there's purpose in what Paul is doing here and his purpose in why Tychicus is going because he, again, is that trustworthy pastor. He was one who, who could be trusted with the message. Paul could trust that when Tychicus arrived, he would not distort the word of God, that he would not uh, somehow make it about himself or somehow make a profit on God's word. And as a congregation, it teaches us that what we want are men who are faithful to deliver God's word and what God says and not what they want to say. This is what Paul means by what he writes in this text. He he, he trusts Tychicus is going to deliver the right message. And as a congregation, we want want men who we trust are going to deliver each week, in and out, the word of God. And that are going to encourage our hearts. We really see here the function of of the preaching ministry of any congregation. Communicate God's word. And encourage the saints. Friends, that is what Pastor Rod and I hope to do every single week. Is to communicate not our great plans for your life, which would be terrible. uh, Or our great ideas, and how great they are, but for you to know God in his word. We do not want you to be dependent on our feeding of you, but... For you to become self feeders. Now, it seems really counterintuitive because I'll put myself, you know, essentially out of a job, but that's not what we're doing. What we're, our hope here is for you to know God better so that you can go home each week and every day and feast on the Word of God. That is why we are committed to expositional preaching. The point of the passage is the point of the sermon and it's applied to your life. What we do each week. Is we're teaching you how to read your Bible, how to study it, and apply it to your life. The principles we use in interpretation, the principles that we use in the presentation, of the, of the sermon presentation, all of it is packaged in a particular way so that you can go home and do exactly the same to yourself, your family, and beyond. But fundamentally, if we do all of that and you leave unencouraged, then we fail. Now, to be clear, there is so much more to pastoral ministry than what Paul has, has you know, pinned in these few verses. But there's surely not less than. This is sort of the bare minimum, if you will, of what faithful gospel ministry looks like. But Friends, this is what you as a, as a congregational member should affirm. So don't listen to the world about what a pastor should be or or what the expectations of a pastor. Look to God where he instructs pastors and congregations on what to affirm, what to look for. Think about that as you look around about men that God is raising up to be elders. Do you see these characteristics in them? What kind of teachers do you surround yourself with? Do, are they faithful are they beloved i think of some pastors in this world that, that are really because of their t- this awful behavior are hard to love are they faithful are they committed have have they stayed the course or are they easily drawn away by by myths And fanciful doctrines. What about those that you listen to outside the church? What about those radio preachers or podcast preachers you listen to? Nothing wrong with them. I'm I'm sure they edify you. Friends, do you know them? Are they faithful? Have they been faithful to their wives? Have they been faithful to their church? Have they been faithful to the gospel? It was so easy for us to listen to, to those in the world or, or even those in the church and think, wow, they must be okay because they have this tremendous platform. Friend, be careful of such things. Just because they have a large following does not mean they're faithful. Do they encourage you in the gospel? Do they tell you the word of God? Or do they just simply tell you what you want to hear? Friend, it is easiest. Paul warned Timothy that there was coming a day when when people, Christians, would surround themselves with teachers who would tell them what they wanted to hear. Friend, it is always easy to surround ourselves with those who are going to tell us what we already believe and know and want to hear. Let this text serve as an example, a litmus, if you will, for our own thinking about what we listen to, what we read, what we consume. As we think about gospel ministry, well, Paul here commends this brother to us, commends him to the church and helps us understand what we should affirm as a congregation. But he moves on from there in verses 23 and 24 and gives us a a final benediction you ever wondered why at the end of every church, and really for two thousand years, you, if you grew up in a mainline church or Baptist church or or backwoods independent church, wherever you grew up, uh, they probably had a benediction, or they should have had a benediction at their end of their service. Some word, some some encouragement. Um, often we use Second Corinthians uh, as a benediction at the end of our service. So some word of encouragement, some prayer, blessing, so and so forth. Well, friends. Th- Churches didn't just come up with this on their own. Uh, they got it from Scripture right here is an example of that. Paul and Peter and others conclude with these sort of benedictions, these sort of word of blessing. They got it from their Jewish uh, background. This was uh, very common for um, priests to, to announce some blessing on them. And when you read them, one one helpful way of reading them is for you to read them as a prayer. So sometimes in the English language, when we see the word may or Uh, just a sort of exhortation, peace. Peace be to you or grace be to you. We're just like, what does that really mean? What it means is, may grace be to you. I'm praying that you would know peace, he says. So in other words, if you change this, let's just read through it as a prayer. Father, I pray that that peace would be known to these brothers and sisters. I pray that that they would know love with faith that's from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I pray that that they may have grace, know grace, that it would be with them, all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. You see, Paul's praying for them. And notice these four prayers that he has for them. He prays that they would know peace, love, faith, and grace. And if you've been paying attention, all of those are particular themes of this letter. Paul is sort of wrapping together, packaging together all that he has talked about in a way, in a memorable way that you could memorize in in literally a few seconds uh, and and take away as a reminder. Little hooks to hang theological truth on. First he says, I pray peace be to the brothers. In chapter 2, Paul taught us that, that this peace, this gospel peace came to us In a means of reconciliation. The word peace, obviously the antonym would be war. The gospel of Jesus Christ tells us that we, apart from Jesus, are at war with God. And in chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul taught us that not only were we at war with God, but we were at war with one another. There was a racial divide and God came and he united us. He drew us near. As Gentiles, we were separated from the promises of God in the Old Testament. We But we were grafted into those promises through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he made one new people group, uh, the church, Christians uh, from the Jews and the Gentiles, uniting them together. And so Paul here, as he concludes the letter, prays that they would know the peace of God, that they would experience the peace of God, both individually and corporately. Peace be with the brothers. In other words, Paul is reminding them that they are now at peace with God. They, they have been reconciled to God. You see, one of the great tactics of the enemy is to tempt you to doubt that God is OK with you. You see, I bet your, you, your conscience has been tweaked and, and hit upon and tempted and to doubt whether or not God really wants you around. Perhaps it was from false theology that taught you that when you suffer, it's because God is far. Or because you did something wrong. A fancy word for that from Eastern world religion is karma. What comes around goes around. Perhaps you're like that this morning. You've been duped to believe that false theology. That what comes around goes around. You'll be hard to find that in scripture. In fact, the opposite is true. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, we get exactly what we don't deserve. We don't deserve salvation. We don't deserve God's forgiveness. We don't deserve God's love. No, we deserve judgment. What comes around, what really should come our way is judgment for our sin, for our rebellion against God, for our spitting in God's face and saying we're going to do life our own way rather than your way. But God, in His immense mercy and grace, that we'll think about in just a moment, He forgave us, and, and, he, and he reconciled us. He, he didn't just say, like, hey, you can be one of my slaves, you know, one of my uh, conquests, but rather He says, you can come and I'm going to invite you to be a, sit at my table, something we're going to think about and celebrate here in just a moment. In that song we sing, His mercy is more once an enemy, or thank you, Jesus, rather, once an enemy. Now, Seated at your table. Which is a tremendous gospel truth. That we were at war with God, but now that we are at peace with Him. That you and God are at peace. Friend, if you are in Christ this morning, God is not angry with you. He may be discouraged by your sin. Friend, He is not angry with you. He is not wrathful towards you. The wrath of God has been satisfied in the death of His Son, Jesus Christ. But not only are we at peace with God, we we're told in Ephesians 2 that we're at peace with one another. That we've been reconciled. That we are in a family. And that's just, this is why Paul says, May peace be with the brothers. May peace be to the brothers and sisters. In other words, may you know the reconciling love of God in your relationships with one another. One of the marks of a true Christian What we heard, read to us from 1 John 4, is the love of the brothers and sisters. And one of the distinguishing marks of a non-Christian is hate. I mean, John emphatically lays it out there for you, doesn't it? He says, if you hate the brothers, if you hate any brother or any sister, any other Christian... You do not know God. I mean, you can't get more emphatically clear than that statement. He says it is an oxymoron for you to say you know God's love and not love others. Just, you can't. It doesn't reconcile. doesn't work. Friend, where are you at war with a brother or sister in this congregation? What relationship do you need to work on this new year? Where do you need to reconcile with a brother or sister who perhaps you've wronged or who has wronged you? Paul prays that they would be reconciled with one another. That they would be at peace with one another. Not only does he pray this, but notice he prays also that they would know the love with faith that they would know love. Now, love has been a theme throughout this letter. Love has shown up over and over and over again through this letter. I just want to uh, show you a few of those. Just turn back briefly in Ephesians 1, chapter 1. The first spotting of it comes to us in verse 4, at the end of verse 4, at the beginning of verse 5. In love, God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. It was the love of God that propelled him to predestine us for adoption. It was God's love for us as his people, in spite, this is unconditional love, not love based on any lovability in us. And then again, look, look here at again in chapter 2 and verse 4, when Paul gives us this grand statement of salvation. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, God's love is described as great and it's loved as it's described rather as active, great and active love. God's love isn't just potential love, it's expressed love. God loved us, past tense, meaning that it's not based on you. You. Paul tells tells us in Romans that before we were ever created, before we did anything, God loved us. He loved us. Then in chapters 3, Paul prayed that they would know God's love better. Look look there at that prayer in chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. There in verse 18 he prayed that they would have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the height and breadth and or rather what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge this love of Christ surpasses human ability to comprehend and so paul concludes this pr- letter praying that they would know this love but in chapter 5 verses 1 and 2 we learn that we're not just to merely know god's love but we are to express god's love by loving others. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave us up gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Again, this is that same point we see showing up and up uh, over and over again uh, there in first John chapter 4 That God's love, if we've truly experienced the love of God in our lives, it cannot be held within. It must be expressed outside in our love for others. It affects us. It's not only effectual, but effective. God cares and loves us. And Paul prays that they would know that love. Friend, do you need to know God's love for you more? Brother, sister, where are you doubting God's love for you? Perhaps it's in your poverty. Perhaps it's in your trial. Perhaps it's in your sickness. Perhaps it's in a loss. Perhaps it's in a whole host of ways, a so life not being what you thought it was going to be, so many ways. Where do you doubt God's love for you? Friend, it's not going to be found by you encouraging yourself, by, by you just building your self-esteem up and thinking about how lovable you are. But rather, by looking at these truths and thinking, golly, God must love me because I know me and I wouldn't love me. I mean, let's be honest, you know yourself, you know your thoughts, you know your struggles, more more so than anyone else. And God knows them infinitely more. And if God knows your deepest, darkest secrets, and he says, I know how wicked and vile you are, but I still love you. Friend, let that truth be an encouragement to you this morning, that God's love is not a tidal wave. It's not the, the tides of the ocean coming and going, ebbing and flowing, based on your personal performance, but rather it is solely based on his love for his son. In fact, there in Ephesians 2 4, it, it says that despite all of our failings, God loved us with great love. I mean, God knows how great our sin is, but his love is greater. Something you could turn into a prayer today is, God, help me to know love with faith. Let me to know and believe and trust in you and depend on your undying, unconditional love for me. That is based solely on your love for your son. Let me know that more and more in this new year. This is why Paul combines love and faith together. Because honestly, it requires faith to know God's love. Because if you really know yourself, if you really know how far you have fallen short of the glory of God, it is going to take a lot of belief and a lot of trust in order to to know that God loves you. Because you know how unlovable you are. And so he prays that they would have such knowledge, belief, truth, theological truth, and they would trust that truth and depend on that truth. Well, he concludes finally there in verse 24 by praying that they would know God's grace more and more. It says, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. This whole letter could be summarized by the word grace. God's grace. His gracious calling in Christ Jesus. The word grace shows up dozens of times throughout this letter. A central Unifying theme of the letter of Ephesians is God's grace in Jesus Christ. God's grace means that he not only forgives your sin. That's mercy. But that he gives you an inheritance for which you do not deserve. That's grace. It's a gift to be received. It is unearned, he says. By grace you have been saved through faith, not of your own works, not of your own doing. It's a gift from God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. What a tremendous truth to end the year on. What a tremendous truth to reflect on, to know that all the riches we have received. This is why Paul prayed in Ephesians 1. That tremendously, beautifully rich and encouraging prayer. Look with me, with it, with me at it there in Ephesians 1. He prayed that they would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation, verse 17, in the knowledge of him. In other words, he wanted them to know something. Not just intellectually know something, but like have an earth-shattering, world-change a change of view about how they see the world themselves, everything. And this would require a supernatural experience there in verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. In other words, open your eyes to the reality of who you are in Jesus Christ and the grace of God you've received. Look at what he writes that you may know. What is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance of the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? That's a big prayer. That's a huge ask. That they would know the grace of God, all the riches. And the power of God and the inheritance that they are receiving. All of this available to them, not because of them, but because of Christ. That's grace. God is gracious towards us. And that encourages us. It also encourages us to evangelism, doesn't it? I mean, if you look at this prayer, this, this benediction that he concludes with, my God, it just gives you the, what he, that armor of God, those shoes fitted ready for, to, to communicate the gospel of peace. You're like, this is tremendous news, and I can't help but tell others about this. Paul concludes this letter in, in a way that, that begs a question. Look with me again. Look how he phrases this. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Now, now I want you to think for a moment what he's doing here. He doesn't say grace be with all you Christians. Grace be with with all you church members in Ephesus. Grace be with, with you. It doesn't say any of that. He says so much more. He says, grace be with those who actually love Jesus. Which means that those who don't love Jesus, I'm not praying for you. Or you could do it in a rhetorical, or in a question form. Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Do you have... An incorruptible love, an undying love for Jesus. Paul's concluding this letter with a response. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ, I just want you to get this truth in your minds, and in your evangelism for that matter, that that communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ without a response is not communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'll say it this way. The gospel of Jesus Christ demands a response. If your gospel presentation does not invite them to respond, either positively or negatively, then you have not adequately communicated the gospel of Jesus Christ. If your your gospel presentation, your evangelistic appeal is, believe Jesus came, died, and rose again, That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a bunch of historical facts about the person of Jesus. That's all that is. And you're asking them to intellectually assent to historical fact. Like saying, do you believe that World War II happened? Uh, Yeah, it's historical fact. The gospel of Jesus Christ demands someone to respond in either affirmation and submission or rejection and denial. And that's what Paul is doing here. Paul concludes this letter by inviting them to respond to what they've just read. Remember, this letter would have been read publicly before the congregation... And it begs the question, what are you going to do? The Gospel of Mark, for example, does the same thing. The Gospel of Mark ends with this sort of thud. They ran away afraid. What kind of response is Mark after there? Are you afraid to follow Jesus too? Will you follow him? And what Paul here is doing in this particular place, in Ephesians chapter 6, in verse 24, is he's, he's, he's inviting you to reflect on this question, do I love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying, unfading, uncorruptible love? Or do I have a fickle love? Friend, is Jesus just kind of around when you need him? you know, when life's bad and when you're struggling and you don't really know what to do and you've turned everywhere else and and you're like, default, I guess I'll go to Jesus and he'll fix my problems? Or is your Christianity so much more richer than that? That you're actually following Christ with an undying love, a love that does not... Run quickly away, but a love that endures to the end. Let that be your question of reflection this year. As you conclude this year, do I love Jesus? And friend, do not despair if you conclude no. This is good. This is grace. God is drawing you to himself. Turn from your sin and resolve to follow Christ with undying love this new year. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would know you better. We know your peace, your love, faith, and grace. I pray that each one of us would be known for such faithfulness as we see in Tychicus, this beloved brother and faithful minister. May we commend such Christians in our life, such teachers. I pray, Father, that as the new year dawns, that we, as God's people, would be known for our incorruptible love, undying love for Christ, unfading love, Persevering love. Oh, we trust that's only by your Spirit's power. Holy Spirit, empower us, we pray, to walk in obedience for your glory and our good in Christ Jesus' name. We pray. Amen.